Oh, sorry if my <laughs> I got a little sick again this week. I've been sick pretty much nonstop since like December. <laughs> um, and then I was preaching at a different church this morning, so my voice is not totally there. But um, so we are starting a new series this week. Um, it is Lent is coming up. Uh, so this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And, um, you know, we've done a, a Lent series for a while now. Traditionally, you know, if you're unfamiliar, Lent is a period of uh, fasting and moderation and, and self-denial, typically observed, traditionally observed by more the Catholic Church some and some Protestant denominations. We don't do, we don't like specifically observe Lent, but we do think it is a nice time to kind of focus on our relationship with Christ and uh, the the length of Lent, just in case you're unfamiliar, it starts, so it starts this Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, which is 40 days before, um, which is Good Friday, actually, not counting Sundays. So it's like 46 days. And so, um, and, and it was considered a time of, so typically it's like a time of fasting, right? A lot of times this is when people fast from certain things. You might go on some kind of media fast or social media fast, or maybe you'll fast some kind of food, some kind of particular food, or, uh, you know, some people fast dinner, like that type of thing. Um, but I'm actually suggesting that we do something a little bit different this year. Rather than stepping out of something, my encouragement is that we would step into something. Uh, so instead of refraining from anything, I want us to take up the rhythms of these three things for the next you know, six or seven weeks, basically giving, praying, and loving. Um, and throughout this series, this series in Lent, we will talk about those things. And I will, at the end of today, talk about the challenge that I gave to kind of members. And also, I think I also talked about it last week. We'll get there eventually, towards the end. Um, today, we're really going to talk more about what is at the heart of this kind of thing. Right? What is foundationally driving, what would drive this kind of campaign or this kind of idea of give, pray, love? And so I want to start with this question today. What does it mean to receive Jesus? What does it mean to receive Jesus? Now, that word receive could mean a lot of things. And before we go too far into what has become more of a modern refrain, it used to be receiving Jesus or accepting Jesus, this kind of thing, was what it meant to be Christian. And then it became like, oh, is that really what it means to be Christian? But I would just remind you that there are biblical texts, you know, for example, John 1, 12, for those who would receive, believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, right? So there is this biblical idea of receiving. And when we think about that word, right, to receive Jesus, and if, in fact, that is what is required to become Christian or to be considered Christian, a follower of God or a child of God, what does that receiving entail? Is it like receiving you know, like a punch, because <laughs> that could be one meaning of the word receive. Is it like receiving something, like you're taking something? Is it like receiving a gift that you need but you don't want? 
It's like, hey, here is a gift. Receiving Jesus. It's like receiving a gift that you know you need, but maybe you don't really want. Or maybe something that you don't really care for. It's like, hey, I was really thinking about you, and I got you this special gift, and you open it up, and it's, you know, a toothbrush. And it's like, oh, cool. Like, that's fine. I could use this. It's something I need, not something I particularly want. It's not something I'm super enthusiastic about. Is it like receiving help that you are glad to receive, but you don't like the person who's giving it? So let's say you're in some kind of dire financial situation and you really need help and your, you know, your arch nemesis, right, like comes to you and like, I, you know, I heard you were in trouble. Like, here's a thousand dollars. And you're like, you know, I need it, so I'll take it, but I don't like you, you know, like this kind of thing. Is it like receiving a package from Amazon? Like you want what's in the package, but you don't really care who delivered it. You know, the Amazon guy, like nowadays, the Amazon guy, he's gone before I even get to the door, right? Like, it's like, ding dong, and I get there, and I open the door, and they're already in the car. I don't know how they even got there so fast. They're like, man, they're fast. But it's like, I don't care about that person. That person is anonymous. What I really care about is the gift, this gift. Now, it's important because there are a lot of examples in the Bible of receiving Jesus in a way that is not saving. Right? Like, for example, John 6, um, they wanted to make Jesus king by force. So there was this kind of spirit of nationalism that rose up, right? And they're like, oh, this is the guy. He's the Messiah. We want to make him king. So they were receiving him in one way as a political king. But that wasn't what Jesus wanted. So Jesus was like, no, I'm not about that. John 7, Jesus' family say certain things about like, hey, oh yeah, yeah, go and do it. But they don't really believe in him. They didn't believe on him. Right? John 2, uh, Jesus did not, and they wanted to receive him again. The people wanted to receive him, but he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he himself knew what was in man. He knew that their hearts were actually not for him. So there are a lot of examples in Scripture of people who wanted to receive Jesus in a certain way, but it wasn't really the right way. So what does it mean then to receive Jesus in a way that is saving? Now, let's look at a passage that I think will help shed some light on this issue. If you guys have your Bibles, let's open them up to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. We'll read verses 34 through 39. And this is God's word. And it says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, what does it mean to receive Jesus in a saving way, or how do we do that? And I'll just, I'll give you 
the first point here. It's really, we're going to start there, but we're going to move on from it. But it is this treasuring Christ. Okay, treasuring Christ is, well, I should say, treasuring Christ supremely is receiving him in a saving way. Now, as we look at this passage, what, uh, this, the context of this passage is Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles. Right? He's sending them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Right? And so he sends them out. He talks about what's going to happen. He talks about the situations you're going to be in. He says persecution is going to come. He tells them to have no fear because God is over them and God is going to take care of them. And then he says something about the nature of the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's not to bring peace, but a sword. But what does he mean by that? I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come, in fact, what he says is to turn families against each other. Jesus is saying that he didn't come for the sake of today, the contemporary understanding of like tolerance, right? Or like those coexist, you know, like bumper stickers, right? Like, no, that's not what Jesus came for. He came to blow up coexist, if anything, right? Because Jesus, by his very existence, is polarizing. This is why Jesus is so core to Christianity, right? Because he is the Christ, obviously, Christ in Christianity, but the reason that we call ourselves Christians and not like guardians, that sounds like I just said guardians with like an accent, right? Guardians. No, like Christians. The reason we call ourselves Christians is because Christ is the exclusive part of Christianity. Because a lot of people say they worship God. In fact, all religions in some sense say they worship God, right? And then they're going to go back to this idea of, well, you know, we all worship the same God in the end. Maybe we have different ways of getting there. But when Jesus shows up and he's like, I'm God incarnate, right? Like, I'm God in the flesh. And I have to die for all of you for you to actually have a way to God. That is the part of Christianity that is, in fact, polarizing. Because people are either going to be like, that makes total sense and I believe in it. Or they're going to be like, that's crazy. I don't want no part of it. And when Jesus says stuff like, I'm the way, the truth, and I am the way, the truth, and the life, you can't get to the Father except through me, that, that excludes everybody else, right? It's like, yeah, you, there's no other way. I'm the only way. So Jesus is intentionally, he's saying, I came to be this kind of exclusive figure. I came to be this kind of polarizing person with this kind of polarizing idea. When you share the gospel, people aren't going to be like, mm, well, you know, it's like I'll just add that to the list of things that I already believe. That's not the nature of Christianity. You don't just add it to a list of things that you already believe. You don't just live your life exactly the same way and then you discover Jesus. You're like, oh, this is cool too. Like, I have all my philosophies about life. I have everything I think about money, relationships, you know, the way that things are supposed to go, family dynamics. I have, a, I have a schedule for my life. I have a plan for my life. I have all these things in order. And then I discover Jesus. And I'll just add Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, that's not how it works. Once I'm there, it's like a sword comes and starts cutting things up and dividing people. Now, this t 
text says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, what does it mean to be unworthy of him? This isn't talking about some kind of deservedness, right? Like if you, mu- if you love your father or mother more than Jesus, or if you love your son or daughter more than you love Jesus, then you don't deserve Jesus. That's, that's not what's being talked about here. It is more the sense of if you, if you love somebody like that in your life, and really the idea is because familial relationships would be the closest relationships that, are, that there are, particularly in the ancient world, right? Father or mother or child, these are kind of the closest relationships that you would have. And so, of course, you know, from greater to lesser, the greater to lesser argument is anything in your life, if you were to love anything in your life more than Jesus, you would not be worthy of Jesus. And what that means is you would not be suitable for Jesus. Like it wouldn't work, basically. It's interesting how many people think, like when people think of heaven, right? If you were to think of heaven as essentially unlimited stuff, you know what I mean? Unlimited, like food and so varieties, and also you could eat whatever you wanted, and you could also eat as much as you wanted, and you would also never gain weight, which does sound (laughs) pretty appealing, right? Uh, You could sleep as much or as little as you wanted, and there could be all kinds of, you know, entertainment and art and music, and basically everything existed, everything that's in the world existed except in infinite measure. But Jesus weren't there. And if you could think that that would still be heaven— then the newsflash is you're not going to like heaven. (laughs) Not because that stuff is or isn't there, but because Jesus is not a ticket to heaven. Jesus is heaven. Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. So if there's no Jesus, there is no heaven. And so, of course, if you do not supremely treasure Jesus then the notion of heaven to you wouldn't be what actually is heaven. Having God, this unveiled relationship with God, direct access without any of the barrier of sin, that's heaven. That experience for eternity without any of the drawbacks of earth, right? No death, no pain, no sin, none of those things. And so, of course, you would not be suitable for heaven. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you didn't consider Jesus your supreme treasure and you ended up in the real heaven, you would just think, this sucks. Like what's going on here? There's nothing to do. All there is is like Jesus and like praise and stuff like that. Like I'm not, I'm not that into this, you know? Where are the video games? Like where, where's the other stuff? You know, where are the buffets? I don't know. There might be buffets. I don't, I don't really know what those peripheral details of heaven will be like. There probably will be food. It seems like there's a good indication that there will be that. But, from, from Scripture, but that's not the point, right? The point is Jesus is the core of it. If you don't have that, then you can't have, it can't be a saving receiving, right? He says in the text, 
Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me in the same sense. If you do not see Jesus as supremely valuable, valuable enough where taking up the cross is worth it, then yeah, you, you won't be worthy of that experience. And whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Clearly, giving up one's own life in the belief that Jesus is supremely valuable. That is the way to receive Jesus in a saving way. Now, John Piper said this, treasuring Christ presses into the actual experience of receiving until it discerns what receiving really is. Let me say that again, and I I paraphrased a little bit, but treasuring Christ presses into the actual experience of receiving until it discerns what this receiving really is. So if, if Jesus is received not only as a rescuer and a master, but also a treasure, a supreme, all-satisfying treasure, that's what it means to actually receive Christ. Right? This is from Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in its joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, here's the problem. Now, here's the problem that we have. Imagine I hid a treasure in a field. And I said, hey, you know, whatever. Here, hey, so-and-so, you know, I hid this treasure. In a, put, put your name in so-and-so. Hey, so-and-so, you know. I had this treasure in a field, right? In the field. I tell you what field it is. It's like a big, you know, it's, let's say it's this field over here where this school is, right? I say, I had a treasure out there. Go find it. It's a very valuable treasure. Go find it, right? And you search around in the field. And you search around, and you're searching for like an hour, and then you find something. You find, you know, a, a half-carat diamond. And you'd be like, wow, I, I found something. Now, what would you do after that? You'd stop, right? You go home or something, right? You go to you go to the diamond guy, you know, and you'd that's not what they're called. I don't know what they're called, a jeweler or something, right? You'd go to him and you would say, "How much is this diamond worth?" And you'd probably sell it or something, and you'd get whatever money, like whatever it's worth, right? A couple thousand dollars or something. But here's the problem: What if what I hid in the field wasn't that diamond? Then you have ceased to search but you didn't find the treasure. Because I feel like that's what a lot of us have done. You know, we have gone to the right field, and we have searched around for the treasure, but the treasure we found wasn't the treasure that God had actually left there because it's not a half-carat diamond. Let's say it's a 10-carat diamond. Let's say it's a 100-carat diamond. In fact, it's not like that at all. It's actually underground. It's a diamond mine with infinite number of diamonds which for the rest of our lives, we can actually mine diamonds out of there to find an infinite treasure on that, in that field that's more akin to what God has given us in our relationship with Christ. But for many of us, we have found on the surface a tiny diamond, and then we thought, there's, not much, there's nothing else here. You know, I, I found a little diamond. And then we stop. That's why we must see Jesus as this all-satisfying treasure of ultimate worth that we will continue to mine him 
for the greater treasure that exists there. Now, secondly, treasuring Christ supremely produces more, produces more than begrudging obedience. Now, if Jesus, you know, if Jesus is supposed to be this exclusive treasure, this higher treasure, and if you don't see that you're not worthy of Jesus, you might think, then is the measure of, like, what's the measure of that worthiness? Is it obedience? You know, isn't love for Jesus just obedience? Sometimes people might quote, like, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And oftentimes, we think something like that. No. Uh, you know, people will look at a passage like that, John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You might say, it's right there. Or if you love me, you keep my commandments. Love, you know, is obedience. But that's not what it says, right? It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It doesn't say obedience is love. It just says, if you love, you will obey. So it's not less than obedience, Certainly, at least not less than the desire for obedience. But what is the, why why can't it not just be obedience? Well, if you look at this passage, it says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, if you were to stop there, you might think, well, that seems like it could follow obedience because you should obey God, you should obey Jesus more than you obey your father or mother. That seems like it actually would make sense there. But then the next line is, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now there it doesn't make sense. Right? Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me cannot mean whoever obeys son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So then obedience cannot be just simply equal to love there. Love cannot be, I should say, simply equal to obedience there. It's not duty that is being talked about here, that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the dearest affections that we have. He's saying that's actually, that's actually what it is. Right? Like when Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, receiving Christ in a saving way means preferring Christ over all persons and all things. It's a, it's a preference. Here's the thing. You can't hate obedience to God and yet treasure Jesus. You guys understand what I'm saying there? You cannot obey God while hating it and yet have received Christ in a saving way. Because you could force yourself to obey, right? At least you can force yourself to think you're living in obedience. You cannot hate serving God and yet treasure Jesus. That's not, that's not possible. Either you have not received Christ in a saving way, or something has gone really wrong in the way that you view Jesus. Something has turned from what it was meant to be, perhaps what it started out as, that Jesus is this all-surpassing treasure. He is the best thing. He is what I prefer to all other things, to all other people. And then it got messed up somewhere along the way. Um, I will say that spiritual discipline 
it's not like playing video games, right? It's not going to, it's never, it will never be a thing that you will just do purely for the enjoyment of it and never think about the benefit of it, right? It's not, it will, it will, it's, it's not ever like that because it does require discipline. Then it wouldn't be spiritual discipline. Discipline wouldn't be a part of it, right? But it also shouldn't be like torture. Do you know what I mean? It shouldn't be like, <laughs> so like when I was young, you know, we used to have this thing, right, which is which is dumb and bad, and it's gone. But um, like when I was in youth group, right, we used to have initiation. You guys remember that? Some of you guys remember that, right? Which was just, it's essentially hazing, right? It's like hazing in church when you go from like an elementary student to uh, to a junior high student. I don't know why. Does this exist in, like, white churches? I don't know. But in, like, our Korean church, you know, we, we had that, right? And it's just essentially you're tortured, right? Like, you go, they kidnap you in the middle of the night. You just show up in this room, right? And, like, they're just, like, forcing you to, to I mean, nothing nothing illegal happened or anything like that. But, you know, they're they were forcing us to, like, um, I don't know, they're just like torturing us basically and like asking us, interrogating us and then forcing us to do push-ups, you know, and stuff like that. It's like it's like a military hazing type of thing. And spiritual discipline shouldn't be like that. You know, serving God shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't feel like that. It shouldn't seem like that's what it is. Like, oh, it's really like you have to pull teeth and you hate it, but you're just going to continue to, it's like, no, that's, that's not really what it's it, it, it's meant to be. It's not meant to produce this begrudging obedience, right? Where on the other side of it, you're just like, because this is what initiation was like. It's like after it's over, right? You just go through this torture, and then you're like, yeah, I did it. You know, it's like, yes, I did it. I have accomplished it, right? Like I went through the torture. That, that's kind of not, that, that's not the feeling we should have after we read the Bible, right? Shouldn't be like, yes. I've accomplished it. I did it. You know, n- no. Right? It should tap into this this supreme treasuring aspect. And I think, you know, for most of us, it does. If it doesn't, I think, again, something has gone wrong there. We, like, we haven't, we haven't viewed it in the right way. Here's a third thing. Treasuring Christ supremely naturally leads to us sharing Christ as our supreme treasure. Treasuring Christ supremely leads to us sharing Christ as our supreme treasure. So, you know, I mentioned this at the beginning, but the context of this passage is sending out disciples on a missionary journey, right? And here, what Jesus is saying here towards the end, and then he concludes with rewards after this. But what he is saying kind of in the you know, in the mission, telling them what is meant to happen when the gospel is preached. He's saying there's going to be this dividing line. It's going to be polarized. Some people will accept and some people will reject. And the people who reject will hate you because this will be offensive. And the people who accept will be fanatical because they will realize that there is in Christ such a deep and valuable treasure. And as he is telling this to them, it's twofold, right? It's one, that they understand it for themselves. If they are able to share this and able to face kind of the persecution that comes along with it and able to face the dividing line that they will see as a result of preaching the gospel, 
then they themselves will learn more deeply the reward and the value of Christ. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like they will learn how much Jesus means to them as they go through this. But secondly, he's also telling them, but this is the way also that you have to present it. Like that Jesus is this kind of treasure. Because the way that we think of evangelism or mission, we tend to think it in a very, we tend to think of it in a very apologetic way, right? Like, I don't mean to bother you, you know, but can I tell you about, about Jesus? <laughs> you know, which is fine. Like, you can say it like that. I'm not saying you should be rude, you know, and be like, hey, you know, I'm the, let me save your life right now, <laughs> you know, tell you about Jesus. Like, I'm not saying that's how you have to present it. But the thing is, that's how we really think about it. Right? Like, we consider it like I'm bothering you by telling you about the all-surpassing treasure of the universe. That doesn't sound right. Right? Like, do you ever, do you talk about anything else? <laughs> like, if you're really into a show, you know, this is a great show and you think it's the greatest show of all time, do you like, I'm really sorry to bother you, you know, but I, I just really want to tell you about, you know, Game of Thrones. Or something, you know, like, like do you, is that, that's not how people talk about that, you know. Rick and Morty. Like, you know, that's, that's not how you talk about it. You talk about it like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? You're not watching this? Like, you've never heard about this? Like, are you living under a rock? Like, you immediately think you are missing out, and I have to tell you about all the wonderful treasure that exists here. But when it comes to Jesus, for some reason, that's not the way we present it. Right? We present it very like, oh, well... You know, like you're doing me a favor by me telling you about this. Like imagine you were given two gift cards every day. I was going to do a million dollars, right? But let me just do two gift cards because this would be motivation enough for most of us. $200 Target gift cards, okay? Every day somebody gives you $200 Target gift cards, one to keep for yourself and one to give away. But if you don't give the one away, then you can't keep the one for yourself. How many of you would not find a way to get rid of one Target gift card? Let's say it's 10 bucks. It's not even 100 bucks, it's $10. You know, well, some people, yeah, some people will be like, dude, get away from me, you're weird, right? Like, why are you trying to give me this, why are you trying to give me this Target gift card? You're weird. But eventually, someone's going to take it, right? Do you know why someone will take it? Because you believe it's valuable. You believe in its value, even if they can't check it. Right? You'll convince them because, one, you believe it's worth it for them, and, two, you know you're getting something out of it, too. So you would find a way to do it. You would keep on offering it until somebody took it. Right? You would be like, hey, you want to start a gift card? It's 10 bucks. It's free. You, know, just, uh, just, you can just have it. You know, there's no, no strings attached. And they're like, no, thank you. You just go to the next person. You're just like, hey, you want to start a gift card? It's free. You know, no strings attached. Like, all, if you would just carry it all day at work, right? You'd just be like, hey, you, anyone want to target gift card, target gift card, target? Like, you would just offer it to everybody around you, right? You would just want to give it out no matter what. Why? Because you believe it's valuable for them, and you believe there's value in it for you. And you know that if you don't do it, then that opportunity just vanishes. You don't get to keep it. So you guys know last year how I was on sabbatical, right? I'd visit all these churches. You know, and um, (laughs) 
So what I'm going to say is, it's going to sound a little bit cynical, okay? But, but I'm just going to say it anyway, because you guys know how I am. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say it. But um, I kind of understand. So we visited a lot of like mega churches, right? Like huge churches, thousands of people. Um, and I understand the desire and like, you know, so I, Okay, let me um, let me let me qualify it by saying this. I don't think megachurches are bad. One, and two, I don't think everyone who goes there thinks this way. What I'm going to say, but I do think that there is a temptation in our cultural context to think this way. Okay, particularly because one megachurches exist. So even for us, even though this is like a small church, we could still think this way. Right, because of our culture. So when I would go there, when we would go there, Boomy and I would go there and we'd take the kids, right? One, there were like tons of services, so it was very convenient. Then we'd go in the morning, we'd drop the kids off. Two, we'd drop the kids off at some, just some machine, right? Like there's this children's machine happening here. There's all these people. You just scan your kid. You know, they stamp a barcode on their head and you scan them in and then, no, they don't really do that. But, you know, you scan them in and then they, you know, they have all these things and they give you like, hey, here, thanks for visiting our church. Here's a, here's a, I don't know, a tumbler or whatever. And you get a t-shirt, you know, and then you go, you sit in service, you just sit there. And then after it's over, you just leave, right? And I found that it's so appealing for it to be that convenient. But you would think, like, but I don't think people go to church just for that convenience. And you'd be right. People don't go to church just for that convenience. They also want to feel like they're doing something in the world. But do you know why going to a mega church is very appealing? Because you could do that. Just show up, drop your kid off pick your kid up, leave, and then also say something like this. When somebody asks you what church you go to, you say, oh, I go to this huge church. There's tons of baptisms every week. We support a bunch of missionaries, right? We help the homeless. We've given hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, to like this or that group or this or that organization, and we're doing this and we're doing that. And here's where my cynicism comes in, right? If you're somebody who used to attend a small church, and then you go to a big church and you do the exact same thing, or maybe less, then I would think, well, you're not doing that. (laughs) Like, you go to a church that does that. You go to a church that sends out a bunch of missionaries. You go to a church that supports homeless people. You go to a church that teaches this and teaches that, but you don't do those things. You don't attend them. You don't support them. You don't give any more at the big church than you did at the small church. So what makes you think that you're doing that? You know what I thought about? I thought about the parable of the talents. And do you know what Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say, hey, guys. He doesn't doesn't call the three guys up afterwards. You guys remember the parable of the talents? He gets one talent. He gets five talents. He gets ten talents. He says, go do something with it, right? He leaves, comes back, and then... Here's what he doesn't do, right? When he comes back, he doesn't call all three servants together and say, hey, guys, I gave you guys collectively 16 talents, and you have made 15 more. Good job, guys. No, he doesn't say that. 
right? He goes to the guy who had 10 and said, you made 10 more. Good job. He goes to the guy who had five and said, you made five more. Good job. And then he goes to the guy who had one who didn't make any more. And he says, get out of here, you wicked and lazy servant. But I understand the desire to be able to make church super convenient and then at the same time be able to say, but I'm contributing to a church that's doing a lot. I get it. Having experienced that, even just for a short period of time, I get it. But I'll tell you, I don't, I don't think that's a good game. I don't think that's a game worth playing. So when we talk about give, pray, love, what I am offering you is to individually step into this notion of treasuring Christ. Right, to say, I will, individ- I will myself, you know, together with others. I, I, I'm not saying ownership of the church is bad, nor am I saying a corporate kind of mentality or doing things together is bad. I just think basically saying other people are doing stuff and then taking credit for it, that's not really anything. That's just deceiving ourselves. So what I would encourage you, and this is the challenge that I've I've set for our our members, and I'll just I'll just say that um, give ten percent to the church for the next six weeks. It's not for the whole year or anything; just for the next six weeks. Part of that is because it will help. It will allow us to bless people in the way that we would like to on Easter. So that is part of it to fund that. Um, Secondly, pray for one person or one family in need, in need of the gospel. Now, that can be in, in whatever way, um, and it can be, you know, praying for God to help them in some way, praying for God to open their heart in some way. And then the third thing would be loving them by inviting them to, to join us on Easter. You know, that they might know that they and you might know the surpassing treasure that is Christ for you to actually step into that. Because ultimately, like when you say something about church, it doesn't really matter in the, at the end of it. You know, like what, what you say about, oh, like our, you know, our church is doing this or that. Like if you were to have that notion, and obviously I'm a pastor, so I do think in those terms sometimes. But honestly, that's not, what motivates me? You know, like the day-to-day of my joy is not based on that. It's based on my own relationship with Jesus. Because that's a far greater treasure. That is a far greater treasure than any other thing that Jesus can give. Whether he would provide something in your job, whether he would provide something in your life, whatever other gift that Jesus would take care of it, that he would give you this or give you that or give you some plan. No, Jesus himself is heaven, and we get to taste that, and we get to glimpse that each time we commune with him, we fellowship with him. And so let's, let's endeavor to step into that this season. Let's pray together. 
Jesus, we thank you so much that you are an all-surpassing treasure, that you are of the utmost value and worth to us. We pray, God, that as we would, we would dig in the mine of the treasure of your love, God, that we would discover that more and more. You know, we're never going to arrive at this level where we just, we just completely get it, God. But we thank you that, um, you know, each time we seek you, we are reminded. Each time we, we find you in the place of our brokenness, God, we are reminded of how much greater you are, how much better you are than the things that the world has to offer, of how those things fail, they fade. Their effects do not last, but yours not only do last for the entirety of our lives, but they will last into eternity. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much that you would give up of yourself, that you would take your cross, really the cross that we deserve, that you would die on it for us, that you have been raised by the Father so that we could be in eternal fellowship with you. God, help us to this season step into that, not only individually in our relationships, but as we try to walk in your steps by giving and praying for and loving those around us, God. Give us courage, give us humility, give us power, Holy Spirit. We entrust it to you. We thank you so much and we love you, Jesus. Amen.